Hey everyone, please be advised that this episode contains discussions around spiritual abuse, religious trauma, and other sensitive topics. The content may be distressing or triggering for some individuals, so if you feel uncomfortable or find these discussions distressing, we invite you to prioritize your mental health and well-being and consider skipping this episode. This is the Touchy Subjects Podcast. My name is Erin Billings, and I am your host. Today, we have a very special episode for you. We have David Hayward, also known as Naked Pastor, and he's going to be talking with me about spiritual abuse. I am so excited for you to hear this episode. We are back, and I have the amazing Naked Pastor David Hayward here with us. David, thank you so much for being here. I know that our audience is going to love hearing from you. I know I'm going to love hearing from you. Can you just introduce yourself, who you are, what you do, for those in our audience that don't know who you are? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me on your show, Aaron. Yeah, so not many people know who David Hayward is, but more people know who the Naked Pastor is. And I've been blogging as a naked pastor since about 2005. I was in the ministry at that time. I grew up in the church, went to Bible college, went to seminary, got ordained, served in the ministry for about 30 years. 2010, I left the ministry and decided to see if I could make naked pastor a full-time gig, which I'd been doing for about five years at that point. And it's worked out. That's what I do now full-time. I'm mostly known for my cartoons, but I also do paintings write books. I have an online community called The Lasting Supper. I do public speaking. I do coaching. You know, I do all kinds of things. And one of the most favorite things for me to do is to post my cartoons and to get involved in the community interaction that takes place, especially like on Instagram, places like that. So that's basically my my story in a nutshell. Aside from the fact that I'm married and we have three grown children. Well, you've got a really full life and I love seeing that. I love your cartoons. I think my favorite one was the cartoon of all of the men talking about women in church leadership. And I'm like, this could not be more accurate <laughs> as a woman who has worked in mega churches and all that stuff. Like, it's just, you hit the nail on the head with that one. And yeah. I think that's what I love about your cartoons is that you're taking very real situations and putting it in a visual form that people can really identify with. And it really, it hits us in the heart, which that's why I think people love Naked Pastor so much. So what is the story behind Naked Pastor? Well, I started blogging, I think my first blog name was like churchpundit.com or something, you know, obnoxious like that. But at the time, Naked Chef, Naked archaeologists, naked truth, these kinds of things were popular at the time. So I thought I wanted to be a, a pastor blogger, but not a normal one. I wanted people to see behind the curtain what really goes on in the ministry, what really goes on in the church, things that I saw and experienced and knew about that I felt needed to be addressed, some critiquing. And, you know, because the church is here, I believe in you know, the freedom of people to gather around a common value or whatever. But my contention is that can we please do it in a healthy manner? So that's basically what my 
cartoons are about. And you're right on there. I've experienced a lot of <laughs> spiritual and religious abuse in my short time working in the church. And so that's why I created this podcast, yeah. because I want people to hear from people like you, who's been in ministry for all mm. of these years. You've got a wealth of knowledge and experience, and you are calling yep. it as it is. It's not as you see it. That's the truth. Yeah. That That's how it is. And so this episode, yeah. I'm dedicating to spiritual abuse. This episode is very important because, like I was telling you before we started recording, I had a conversation. My family is full of pastors and church leaders. Like, if there's anything that I know, it's church. And it's just because I've been in that whole environment, in that culture for so long. Right. People don't know what spiritual abuse is. And so that's, that's one yeah. reason I love your cartoons is because it gives them a visual. People are visual thinkers. And so yeah. when they see it, it makes it that much more real. So you have been a pastor yeah. for over 30 years. What led to your own deconstruction? Okay, so my deconstruction was, I call it a glacial melt because it began way, way back when I was graduating from seminary. It was actually my graduation day. I was in my graduation gown in our apartment. I was freaking out because up to that point in my Christian life, I'd really believed in the inspiration of Scripture, but all of a sudden I didn't. And it was on this day when I realized, oh my goodness, I don't know if I believe in the inspiration of Scripture. And Lisa was like, my wife was grabbing me by the shoulder saying, you have to go to your graduation <laughs> ceremony. Like I was freaking out because all, all of my beliefs, all of my theology, all of my Christianity was founded on and depended on the inspiration of scripture, right? So when that was pulled out, it was like traumatic. It was a crisis. And so what I did then when I, you know, I continued in my studies in ministry, I started my PhD and all this kind of thing. I just sort of figured, okay, I don't understand this. Some people react to that by throwing the whole thing out. I wasn't willing to do that. I, I needed to figure out how does this all make sense? Like the Bible's still important to me, but it may not be written by God, but like, how, how does this all work? And so actually it took me like wow. 30 years of ministry to, you know, finally the, all the puzzle pieces fell in place and a, and a picture formed. And I, and I, I actually, that happened in 2009. It was in 2010 when I actually left the ministry. And some people say I left the ministry. Other people say I'm still in the ministry, just online, but whatever. So that, that's when my deconstruction began. That's how it began. But it was a long time ago, and it took a long time to, to integrate and process. Wow. 30 years is a long time. But I'm yeah. sitting here thinking, I feel like deconstruction might be a lifelong process. Well, that's what I, I say. I say, I say deconstruction is a way of life. It's, it's a, a posture towards life of not swallowing hook, line and sinker, everything you're taught or told or whatever. For me, it's, it's basically being open to questions and wonder and, you know, 
inquiry and research and discovery and exploration. The, the opposite to that, of that to me is dogmatic fundamentalism. And, and so to remain open and, uh, in an exploring kind of a posture to me, that's what deconstruction is. I love that. So yeah, it's a lifetime thing. I think a lot of this lends itself to spiritual abuse. Whenever we talk about that dogmatic part where it's almost like my mom calls it Borg thinking, you know, the Star Trek reference, like it's one minded. And that's what a lot of people in the church want us to be. And they don't want us to ask questions. And that's high control religion, really. But it also, it kind of quashes our critical thinking skills. I find that a lot of Christians are underdeveloped critical thinkers. I mentioned earlier that Christians really have no idea of what spiritual abuse is, much less that they're contributing to it. What, in your definition, would spiritual abuse be? So, yeah, a lot of people say there is no such thing as spiritual abuse because truly spiritual can't be abusive. But that's that's not what it's talking about. It's like saying, you know, there's no such thing as physical if there's physical abuse or emotional abuse or financial abuse. What spiritual abuse means, just like physical or emotional or financial or sexual abuse means, is that it uses spiritual items as weapons to limit, control, manipulate, coerce, or even harm others. So it's not, it doesn't mean that this abuse is spiritual. It means that the, the abuse is using spiritual items to hurt other people, just like with financial abuse where you're withholding money or whatever, or sexual abuse where something that could be beautiful, sex, is actually being used as a weapon or physical abuse, a, a fist or, or whatever. Um, there's nothing wrong with a fist, but when it's used as a weapon, then it, then it is harmful, it is abusive. So it's the same with spiritual abuse. We're talking about things like the Bible or spiritual authority, you know, like the priesthood or the ministry or uh, uh, leadership, anything like that, or theology or any of these things. There's nothing wrong with those things. There's nothing wrong with the Bible. There's nothing wrong with spiritual authority. There's nothing wrong with leadership. There's, you know, all these things. But when they're weaponized, that's when it becomes abuse. So that, that's what we mean when we talk about spiritual abuse. That it's, it's that these otherwise harmless things are used as weapons to, on the milder end, manipulate people to the more severe end to actually harm people. I love that. That's a great working definition. What are some common red flags that you've witnessed or heard of that indicate that spiritual abuse is happening in a church setting? Well, l listen, l you're, you're talking to the wrong guy because my belief is not only because of my decades of experience and observation and participation 
in a system that is notorious for spiritual abuse. I really do believe that the gravitational pull of all systems, all organizations, all institutions is towards the dehumanization of its membership. You know, I believe that anybody who's involved in the leadership of any institution or organization or community or, or whatever, it needs to be their number one intention that it not slide along the gravitational pull towards the dehumanization of its members. It's just gravity. It's just what happens because managing people, which eventually turns into control, is the easiest way to facilitate or moderate community. And it just, that's just the automatic default way it's going to go unless you work hard night and day to intentionally prevent it. The problem is that, like I said, it's just easier to let it happen for management to turn into control. It's just easier. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of humility and honesty to constantly be on guard against manipulating or coercing other people. And so I think spiritual abuse is a germ that is present in every single organization, institution, whatever, church. It's, it's there just waiting to multiply. And, and so that's why I, I, I claim that we need to be diligent about preventing that from happening. But it's just easier not to. I think that's why spiritual abuse is so pervasive. Yes, I agree with that wholeheartedly. You know, you know, Aaron, I'm thinking of some analogies here where sometimes abuse has been culturally acceptable. So like foot binding, you know, where uh, ancient, some ancient cultures would bind the feet of women, of girls, and, and to keep their feet small because small feet were considered sexually attractive or whatever. You, you know what I'm talking about there? Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and, um, and there's other, other things like elongating the neck with rings or enlarging the lower lip with, you know, braces or, you know, what, whatever it is that we do to make somebody's body conform to our image of what beauty is. Many, many leaders do that in a spiritual way with their members. And it's considered acceptable because this is what beauty looks like. This is what holiness looks like. This is what sainthood looks like. This is what righteousness looks like. And they think they're doing us a favor when in fact it's, it's harmful. It's actually harming us. And with modern, more, more and more modern modernity and, and modern civilization and advancements and progression and all that, we now know that binding the body in, in some way to deform it essentially, is is now considered harmful and abusive. And I think we need to translate that same attitude to the spiritual realm, where, you know, usually, like I've grown up in churches where it just seems normal to shame people into good behavior, where now we should know by now that shame is not a great right. motivator. 
it's right. it's it's harmful to the human spirit to be constantly shamed into conforming. So even though it's acceptable in that culture, and even though it seems harmless, and even though the end seems to justify the means, we now know it's harmful, and that is abusive. And and so that's what I would say on the on the milder end, manipulating people in such ways. But then we have spiritual abuse that goes all the way to, you know, sexual in, inappropriate behavior and harassment and even abuse, right? So, or assault. So, yeah, it's look, across the, we see that range of abuse from manipulation to assault in all kinds of institutions and including the church. So I think it's time that we get honest open our eyes, see what's happening, and call harm, harm, you know? <laughs> Amen. It always bothers me how the church sweeps things under the rug. And something that I say all the time is that if we sweep enough under the rug, we're going to trip on it eventually. And there are a lot of churches that I believe right now, they're about to have a reckoning. And I do believe that a lot of people that are experiencing religious trauma and spiritual abuse, they're not going to put up with it anymore. And I'm thrilled about that. But the church has to change if they want to keep people in the seat. There has to be some kind of change. Many people begin to deconstruct after experiencing spiritual abuse, whether they're aware of it or not. Why do you think that is? So I, th I think there's two kinds of deconstruction when it comes to Christianity, and one is theological, and that's when we start questioning our beliefs. I think there's another kind of deconstruction, which I've observed, and that is ecclesiological, and that's when they change their relationship with the church. Interestingly, when people deconstruct theologically first, it usually affects their relationship with the church. Mm -hmm. That's what I've seen and experienced. That's my own experience, and that's what I've observed, is that when people start questioning their beliefs, they discover that the church isn't the safest place to do that, and they end up having to leave or hide. People who deconstruct ecclesiologically, it can either be through ideology, like, for example, the church isn't as pure as it used to be, you know, we need to get back to the way the church was in the earliest Christianity, or they've experienced some kind of spiritual abuse or whatever. They don't necessarily deconstruct theologically right. as well. Often, in fact, many people who deconstruct ecclesiologically from the church may even become more conservative or fundamentalist in their beliefs, even though they've changed their relationship with the church. So I find that a very interesting yeah. dynamic. But one of the reasons why people relationship with the church does change is because of spiritual abuse and they finally had enough. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to change their theology. It may though, because they now question the validity of the church and its orthodoxy and the trust in the institution. And that's been the vehicle through which they've received all their spiritual education and, you know, all that. So it's a really interesting topic of the different kinds of deconstruction and the many different layers that come with it. But spiritual abuse is certainly, at least what I'm seeing, uh, spiritual abuse is common to most people who are deconstructing. They're not unfamiliar with it. I mean, that's been my experience. It's so unfortunate 
See, I, I, I believe in a thing called systemic evil. I know a lot of people don't believe in that, but I believe in that systems inherently are like the, the gravitational pulls is towards the dehumanization of, of people. Systemic evil. You know, when you, when you think about good people who are put in, um, different situations where like that, like that experiment that took place at Stanford where they set up a fake prison and they took applications for some students to be the prisoners and other students to be the guards. And within days, the guards became very abusive. And uh, the one who wrote the Lucifer effect, what's his name? Zimmerman, maybe? Um, anyway, who he led that experiment and they had to actually wow. shut it down because it, it had rapidly become abusive. And the shocking thing is, and he, and he has since become a key witness in like the Abu Ghraib uh, prison um, incidences where these wonderful people, perfectly normal, psychologically healthy soldiers became very abusive of, of the prisoners there just because of the situation. And, and so this sort of, this whole talk about systemic evil, I really do believe it's, uh, it's a thing where uh, systems, institutions, organizations, they just, the gravity of trying to control people pulls it into that sort of manipulative, abusive, coercive sort of attitude towards, towards other people. And I've seen it in churches all the time. I've had to fight it as a pastor constantly because it's just a de default position in institutions and in systems. And I wish more people would realize that, more churches would realize that, and be more intentional about fighting against it. I agree. And this is something that I'm going to be fighting for the rest of my life. People that have experienced spiritual abuse want justice. Or they want to see their abusers held accountable. I know that's been my thing. I just want to see accountability. How would you recommend they approach reporting abuse? Oh, that's a really, really tough one, isn't it? Because the church, in many ways, is cocooned against the secular court. You know, like even in some of the Pauline epistles, it doesn't talk about the shame in going to you know, the court to settle a case between brothers or sisters. It's kind of considered a no-no. I've, I've written a lot about this because it, it's a, it's a, a real thing. And, you know, it's just considered very unchristian to take another Christian to court. And then on top of that, you've got the very kind of fuzzy lines of what is spiritual abuse. A lot of secular courts might not take it seriously, you know. Oh, what do you mean they made you feel guilty and, you know, ashamed of whatever, like, you know, that's, that's, you don't have a case kind of a thing. Another issue is safety. I really highly recommend if anybody wants to pursue any kind of justice that they make sure that they are safe and that their loved ones are safe. Often spiritual abusers are narcissists and they won't stop at anything to silence you and those around you. So. I would, I, I've had my experience with narcissistic 
leaders, have you? And and they're brutal. Oh, yeah. They're brutal. They're cr- You're speaking literally my lived experience. <laughs> so, you know, you have to make sure you're safe. I would also make sure if you're going to come with anything that you have it well documented, a paper trail, your journal, text, you know, sermons, whatever. And then, like, I've been spiritually abused in my past, but I didn't ever feel the need to go to the court with it or anything like that. There was a secret longing in my heart sometimes to see justice, you know, happen and for them to receive their due or, you know, uh, for them to experience some karma. But I really never have seen that. And I really don't believe in that anyway. And I don't like seeing people suffer, even if some people think they deserve it. I do know some people, though, um, especially women, who have experienced spiritual abuse at the level of assault um, and sexual harassment or sexual assault that I think if they have the courage and the patience and the money, they'll need to lawyer up. Uh, if they want to pursue it, then, you know, I think they should. But it's a very fuzzy domain, that whole spiritual abuse thing. But like I said, if it does reach the level of harassment, assault, then, you know, you might have a case. That was my experience. I actually reported to the EEOC whenever I was sexually harassed by multiple pastors at a church. And the only reason that it got thrown out is because there is a time frame that you have to report that I did not know about. And I share this because I want women out there listening to know Exactly what David just said is right on. You want to have a paper trail. You want to document as much as possible, but you also want to know where to report and the time frames that you have so that, like in my case, the lawsuit would have made it. The EEOC would have sued the church had I made it in that time frame. But because I waited to report until after I had been dismissed from the church, it didn't go anywhere. So if you're listening out there and you're going through a situation like this, make sure to report as soon as it happens. The EEOC is a government organization, and this only works if you are an employee of a church. So it's essentially the hoops that you have to jump through if you want to report an employer for sexual harassment. Sexual assault is different. That is actually criminal. So sexual harassment, you've got to go through the government agencies to be able to report these things and jump through their hoops. You still have to have a lawyer is just a little bit different between harassment and assault. I learned so much, and that's why I talk about it so much on my podcast, because I want women that go through these things to know what their options are. 
that's important to me because I don't want anybody to experience what I've experienced. Mm -hmm. How much time were you given? How much time do you have with the ECOC? I believe it is 180 days. Oh man, that's nothing. Jeepers. Half a year. Well, and then that can be extended if you are terminated, if it's a wrongful termination, which in my case, it was a wrongful termination because I was mm -hmm. fired for insubordination. That's what I was like, fired for once. High five. <laughs> so yeah, translation of insubordination as a church employee, that means you won't do what I say. And that's where they lose their control. I guess my last question would be, as somebody who is actively trying to advocate for people that have been spiritually abused, and also as somebody who wants to help heal the church, I'm not here to tear down the church. There are good tenets of it, but there are, like you said, things that have to change. What are some systems that could be put in place at the institutional level to hold pastors and church leaders accountable for their actions? Well, most churches do have those things in place, but the church is a very slippery animal. It can maneuver its way around and figure out how to protect itself. Like it's, it's number one, I don't care what anybody says, the church's number one concern is preservation of itself. That's got to be. It's number one. That's the number one of every institution is to survive. Just like my brain's number one concern with me is to protect the organism. That's number one. And that's the same with all institutions, including the church. And so even though, like, like say the Southern Baptist Convention can have all kinds of things, protocols set in place and safety checks and all this in place to address abuse and harassment and assault, it still finds ways to slip around and, you know, not get nailed to the wall. Like it's, it's like, it's genius in its ability to protect itself. Same with the Roman Catholic Church, same with all kinds of churches everywhere, vineyard churches, Presbyterian churches, United churches, I don't care what kind of church, independent churches. They can have all kinds of protocols in place, all kinds of things in place to prevent and address abuse and all those things, but it just is a, uh, a weasel when it comes to trying to get it to, to admit fault and address the issue. That's why I think it's very important that often, and I'm sure this might have been your experience as well, Aaron, is that when you have a, a case of abuse or harassment or wrongful dismissal or assault or whatever, oftentimes you're going to feel like you're on your own as you oh, are. Oh, no, that's absolutely true. Except for your buddies. But you're not going to find solace in the church or the institution or, or, or whatever. That's been my observation. Sometimes I could be wrong, but that's generally what I've seen. So number one, if you're experiencing abuse in a church, get out. That's, that's number one, get out. Um, and then if you feel you have something that's strong enough to be a case, then uh, pursue that. But 
Protect yourself, number one. I mean, spiritual abuse is a very complicated matter because, um, and I know a lot of people who have experienced spiritual abuse deal with a lot of shame and guilt and confusion because they feel like they were kind of complicit in it. I know when I was in, in abusive situations, it was like I kind of enjoyed the intensity of, of the community and the intensity of service and the, the loyalty I showed and, you know, the rewards I received. And there was this kind of a, a weird thing going on of where uh, I was experiencing spiritual abuse, but I took it, you know? And so after the fact, when I look back and say, holy smokes, that was not healthy. And then I have to deal with the fact, like, why? Why did I submit myself to that stuff for so long? Why did it take me so long to see it? So it, this whole spiritual abuse thing is fascinating. It's very real. A lot of people are experiencing it, but thankfully a lot more people are opening their eyes to it because more people are talking about it, right? Spiritual abuse, spiritual trauma, religious trauma, church trauma, those things are now becoming recognized labels. And even therapists now are getting training in religious trauma. So it's a thing. And we're talking more about it now than we did 10 years ago. And I am so thankful that people are talking about it. That's the first thing is the awareness that it's happening and then being able to voice your experience. A lot of people send me books that they've written to get a review on. And I'm, I'd say half the books are written by women sharing their story of spiritual abuse. And boy, the level of honesty and vulnerability and the spotlight that's shining on the church or a particular church or a denomination or leaders or whatever. It's, it's incredible. So, you know, I think, I think you're right. I think the church has got to come to a place where it recognizes this is a real thing and we need to be aware of it and address it and do whatever we can to prevent it. And I wish more churches would train its pastors in and church leaders in recognizing how to prevent the church from going in that direction. Well, David, you're speaking my language because that's my next thing. <laughs> but it starts with the pastor's own recognition that it wa- he wants to manage people. He might think it's for their own good, but he needs to somehow or she needs to somehow be able to take their hands off the, the wheel, so to speak, and, and let the community be. It's like a overbearing father learning how to let his children just be themselves. That takes a lot of courage, a lot of patience. Um, but I think if, if we can learn how to do that as communities, we'd be in a, a lot healthier position. I agree wholeheartedly. Well, thank you so much, David, for your time and your wisdom. How can our listeners find you? Well, NakedPastor.com is home base, but um, everywhere I'm on all social media platforms as Naked Pastor. My Instagram is probably my busiest account. But yeah, if you're uh, looking for Naked Pastor, one word, you'll find me. Well, thank you again. I appreciate you so much. And everybody out there listening, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week and we'll catch you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Touchy Subjects podcast. 
If you would like more information about what we do and who we are and how you can get involved, check out our website, www.letstalktouchysubjects.com. You can also find us on Instagram at Let's Talk Touchy Subjects. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.